Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's my favorite nugget of wisdom from a data geek this week. Go give an election official a hug. Best to wait until the pandemic is over, of course, unless you're living with one, in which case, give them a hug from the rest of us. Michael McDonald from the University of Florida says those officials have counted more ballots than ever before. Around 160 million Americans exercise their right to vote. President Trump is on course to get 68 million of those votes, five million more than he did last time, the second highest total ever. The highest vote total in American history will go to Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the counting continues three days later. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what just happened? Joe Biden is poised to win a rare victory against a sitting president. A Biden White House would set a new tone for America. And yet, the unexpected closeness of the vote and the president's continued questioning of the result means Trump's brand of populism may well live on in America. In this episode, we'll decode the message the voters sent and what it means for America. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fassman, The Washington correspondent. John, how have you been? Nothing much happening this week. Quiet one for you. It's been a quiet week. I haven't done much of anything. Um, I've been in Philadelphia this week. I'm very well. You know, there are, by my count, just 1,182 days left until the Iowa caucuses. So I think we should talk about that today. Okay, (laughs) excellent. Charlotte, how about you? How's your week been? It's been fine. In New York, there was anticipation of unrest, and all the stores near me are boarded up. But there hasn't been much on that front. There have been a few protests, but mainly New Yorkers are doing what they do best, which is sitting around, uh, watching news, checking Twitter, and being about to pass out from anxiety. Okay. Well, talking about obsessively refreshing your Twitter feed, we are recording this podcast at about 7 a.m. Eastern time. So we're going to caveat what comes next by saying we don't have the full results in yet. So by the time you're listening to this podcast, you may have more complete results than we do at the time of recording it. Before we throw ourselves into analyzing what feels like the longest week in American politics, it's worth pausing to remind ourselves how it started. The city of Philadelphia is one of the places where votes are still being counted as we record this. Fasman, you were there on election day. I was. I sort of had a hunch it could all come down to the city. So I spent Sunday and Monday, the two days before the election, talking to as many voters 
in as many different parts of the city as possible. So today we're in Malcolm X Park and we are having a West Philly healing circle. Melita Reagan is a young volunteer helping to clean up the park on a cold rainy morning. I'm feeling very apprehensive, um, a little on edge just because we just don't know what to expect. Philadelphia was once America's capital. Like many cities with pasts more glorious in their presence, it manages to be both charming and chippy. This past week, it was once again the center of American politics, the biggest swing city in the most important swing state in America. Everybody is watching America right now. Sean Banks is an election supervisor in Ward 18 on the city's east side. The whole world is watching us right now. The whole world. Wilmington, Delaware, Joe Biden's hometown, is just half an hour away. Biden's campaign headquarters are in Philly, and any Democrat who wants to win this state has to bank a lot of votes here. The city was plastered with signs in multiple languages urging people to vote. It's an overwhelmingly Democratic city, but there are pockets of support for President Trump, too. Now we are in a uh, Georgian restaurant. Yeah, it's my restaurants and my family's restaurants. Imera Londoridze is a baker from Georgia and not the one with 16 electoral votes. Caucus people is like it, uh, Trump. About the Bidens, I can't say much about this, but he's just talking, you know, he's just talking. Imedo wanted stricter controls on illegal immigrants who don't pay taxes. But most people I spoke to were far more worried about President Trump's leadership. We actually lead the world. So if we start lying, the rest of the world start lying. You know, we be truthful and humble, the rest of the world be truthful and humble. Back at the polling place, Sean Banks, a former gang member turned businessman, was inspired by the high turnout. We just got to make our voices heard and make sure he don't get back in for four more years. At the first debate, President Trump warned that bad things happen in Philadelphia. But I spent election day roaming the city, and all I saw were citizens carrying out their civic duty, maintaining America's participatory democracy. Philadelphia is just a city that's like no other city. You know, we know the independence start here. We know a lot of stuff starts here. Good things happen in Philly. So, Charlotte, we don't yet have the full results, but we can already say a few things with certainty. Thing one is that we've seen the highest turnout since 1900, the highest turnout since women got the vote in America, Joe Biden's got more votes than any other presidential candidate in American history. Donald Trump's got the second highest vote total. So if you're looking at the sort of vital signs of American democracy, even though things look really rough at the moment and the president is contesting the result and the counts are taking a while to finish, I mean, that turnout is a pretty encouraging sign, isn't it? The turnout is an encouraging sign that all these people felt motivated to go to the polls is... Remarkable. I think that it's a bit less encouraging that so much of the vote seems on both sides to really be motivated by fear as opposed to and fear of the other side. And I think that it is worth noting the extraordinary language that Trump has used. Filing lawsuits is one thing, but getting on TV and questioning the legitimacy of the entire system is another. He was on TV last night saying, if you count the legal votes, I easily win. And I was watching Sean Hannity, who's one of the president's 
um, most fervent supporters on Fox. And he was saying things like, it will be impossible to ever know the true fair election results. So you have this tension when you look at this week in that, absolutely, I agree with you, it's an extraordinary set of numbers, the number of people who have voted both for Trump and for Biden as a demonstration for democracy. At the same time, you have the person who is the sitting president undermining the legitimacy of of those votes. Yeah, I agree with that. Clearly, what the president's doing now is both incredibly irresponsible and dangerous and entirely predictable. And indeed, something we did predict on the podcast. One of the things I've been thinking watching these results coming in is that we all ought to be incredibly thankful for the way that American elections are organised. You know, these county officials who've now become stars on rolling news just seem incredibly unflappable and dedicated to getting this process done. You know, if American democracy were organised in a more centralised fashion in which a kind of federal body was in charge of running all elections, then it would be genuinely scary that the president is saying the things that he's saying and trying to tell everyone to stop counting. But he just doesn't have control over what's going on in all these counties, and nor should he. And so the same thing that's making this count really drawn out and making it look you know, somewhat chaotic from the outside is also the thing that insulates the process from too much presidential influence, it seems to me. John, if the outcome is as we think it is, does that amount to a rejection of Donald Trump and Trumpism? Or are you more struck by the closeness of this election? And do you therefore think that actually, you know, it's not much of a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism lives on and maybe even Donald Trump runs again in 2024? I think there are a bunch of questions in there to unpack. First of all, it's clearly in some way a rejection of Donald Trump because he lost. But I think a lot of people hope for a much stronger rejection of Trumpism. And that explains the despondency of the left on especially on Tuesday night and Wednesday. I think there were hopes, if not expectations, that the Democrats could pull off wins in Florida, Iowa, Ohio, Texas, all places where polls, as we'll talk about later, showed Joe Biden with a slight lead. As far as the future of Trumpism goes, that's the question that everybody's asking, but it's not clear what Trumpism really means. I mean, I think that the Republican Party has found a nativist streak and immigration restrictionism will be central to the party for a while. I think Donald Trump will retain some personal power for a while. Will he be a permanent kingmaker? I don't know. I mean, he's going to find himself when he leaves office in some legal and financial trouble. And I think you can't discount the number of Republican elected officials who just don't like the guy, who will tell you off the record they don't like the guy, and who will be loyal to him in public, but who I think will use any opportunity they can to cut his knees out. There are also rumors that Don Jr. or Ivanka may seek office in 2022 or 2024. I mean, that may happen. They don't have their father's instinct for the jugular. I have a hard time thinking that they will have anything close to the success that he had. But it is certainly true that this election provided a much more moderated rejection of Trumpism than I think a lot of people on the left and in the center had wanted. Charlotte, how do you read this result as a verdict on Trumpism? I mean, on the one hand, incumbent presidents normally get re-elected. You'd have to go back to George H.W. Bush in 1992 or Jimmy Carter in 1980. You would expect everything being equal, a president to be re-elected. So the fact that Donald Trump hasn't been is a big deal. On the other hand, you could say 
this is pretty amazing that a president can so mismanage the federal government's response to COVID-19 and still win the second highest total of votes in American history. Which which way do you see this? I think clearly if Joe Biden is able to pull off the election, which it looks like he will, then Democrats should rejoice at that. But I've been really struck by the contrast between some of the language that Democrats have used in the run-up to election and what they sought from the election. Joe Biden often said, you know, this is not who we are. And he would look straight at the camera and talk about the character of the American people. And it turns out it kind of is. You know, 70 million people voting for Trump is a lot of people. And even if his entire presidency had been the most conventional presidency that you can imagine, like that of George H.W. Bush or somebody like that, just the events of the past week with the president getting on camera and questioning the legitimacy of the outcome, that alone would be such a remarkable departure from any president in recent memory or longer. So, you know, I think that that Trumpism is here to stay. I think that he is not going to go quietly and he is, uh, whether you like him or not, he's incredibly skilled at using the media. I think he'll have a great platform on on Fox News. Maybe he'll have his own show. Maybe he'll be, you know, a frequent caller. I don't know. But he's certainly not going to fade into retirement to play golf. So I think Trumpism is going to be around for a while. All right. Thank you both. We'll look at what went wrong with the polls and the mechanics of the election results in a moment. But first... In place of my usual nag, a huge thank you to everyone listening who already subscribes to The Economist. Hopefully you found our journalism valuable over this long campaign. We certainly believe that it is. If you're not a subscriber, perhaps you ought to be. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. As you'd expect, there's plenty more in this week's issue about what this election result means. There's also a really powerful defense of free speech in relation to Islamophobia in France and a brilliant epidemiology of global hipsterism. Economist.com slash 2020 election pod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Election night came as a big surprise. The early results toppled our expectations of a comfortable democratic victory, as indicated by pre-election polls. Our own election model gave Joe Biden a 97% chance of winning just before election day. Elliot Morris is the economist's data guy who built that model using a combination of the latest polling data and patterns observed in previous elections. I asked him about what happened. As those early results came in, the actual forecast probabilities didn't change that much. Uh, Losing Florida for the Biden campaign obviously damaged his overall expected electoral vote value, but he was still hovering above that 270, and he has been for the entire time. So the overall takeaway is that our model said, even given a large polling error, you know, twice as large as we saw in 2016, Joe Biden should win. And that looks to be about what has happened. Did you manage to remain pretty calm through the night? I mean, I confess that I wrote a bunch of articles in this cycle about the blue shift and the fact that early returns and in-person voting would likely be very positive for Donald Trump and then Joe Biden would catch up later. But somehow, even though I knew that to be true, watching the results coming in, my sort of analytical brain switched off and 
perhaps through lack of sleep and too much coffee and other things. You know, it's hard not to just take the snapshot of the partial results you have at the time and kind of over-extrapolate from them. Were, were you able to sort of keep your critical distance? Well, that's what the live model's useful for, right? I, I certainly succumbed to many of the same psychological pressures as those first results came in and they were so different. I do think that 97% from the top of our model may have skewed expectations a bit, and that's something we're going to have to think about for next time in 2024 when we do this all over again. <laughs> I can't wait. How bad was the polling, really? Again, early on when those results came in and people looking at the in-person voting totals and comparing them with what the poll said, you know, concluded quickly that there'd been a sort of gigantic polling misfire, even worse than in 2016. How does it look now? I mean, we don't have complete results, so we have to caveat that again. The way I typically think about these errors is uh, if uh, we were analyzing them in the average state. So in the average state, our model's error, which combines polling error and some other statistical factors from you know the state of the economy and stuff, the error is about twice as large in the average state as it was in 2016. Now, those average predictions, as you note, are driven up by some particularly bad predictions in Florida, Ohio, Iowa, and Wisconsin and Michigan. But it looks like as the votes are counted, other states are going to approach closer to a better than average showing. Uh, The model's doing pretty darn well, actually. So these early diagnoses of the polls and the forecasts as uh, sort of wildly off, uh, I think they were premature. They were certainly tempting, but premature as well. Well, one of the things that's bugging me looking at these polls, like looking at the polls in 16, is that the errors don't seem random in the sense that there aren't a lot of states, there aren't really any states this time around, where polls suggested Donald Trump would win, but in fact, Joe Biden won. So they're polling errors that only seem to go in one direction. I know you've been writing about this for us, and it's something we've talked about a bit. What's your thinking about what's causing those sort of one-way polling errors? Yeah, these uniform polling errors across 2016 and 2020 uh, are concerning. Even more concerning is that the polls seem to miss uh, not only in the same direction nationwide, but in the same states. So we're looking at some underlying factors causing the polling error here. And like you say, we've written a few hypotheses. Now, pollsters are going to have to test these out to make sure they're remotely accurate. The first explanation is that pollsters are still missing Trump supporters. And if what we're witnessing is Republican voters not necessarily lying to pollsters about who they support, but not answering the polls at all, that explains lots of these errors that are stronger for Trump in states he does well in and weaker in states he does poorly in because it it signifies, right, that lots of the people in those states just aren't talking. Let's park the discussion of the polls there and talk about actual county-level returns and state returns, which you've also been digging around in. What have been the most striking features for you in terms of those those numbers? Really, the surprising thing to me is the extent to which the polarization in the country between 2012 and 2016 has carried forward to 2020. Joe Biden's lost ground in places where Clinton lost ground versus Obama and gained ground in places where she gained ground. This continuation of polarization in the country, I don't think is 
what I expected and is probably even more concerning than it has been over the last four years. That's really interesting because part of the logic, I think, for Democrats picking Joe Biden was that he would be able to arrest that drift of non-college educated white voters away from the Democratic Party towards the Republican Party, which we've seen over the last few cycles and which is you know, transforming both parties, really. But he didn't seem to arrest that movement much, if at all. Yeah, that's right. And this is also connected to the polling error we saw, right? Because the polls factored in mainly three things that Donald Trump was going to do better with Hispanics than he did last time, right? We knew that going into the election, that he was going to do worse with college-educated whites than he did last time. Again, uh, we knew that from the polls and that the non-college-educated white population was going to swing toward Joe Biden. Now, based on the county-level returns, those first two things have happened. Hispanics are more Trump-leaning and college-educated whites are more Democratic-leaning. But the third thing, right, this swing among non-college whites back toward the Democrats has not happened. Well, Elliot, I guess you've got to stay up for these last returns that come in. But after that, I hope you get a good, solid weekend sleep. Thank you for the model, which is terrific. And it turns out it's performed pretty well this cycle. So I think you deserve a big pat on the back for that. All right. Thanks, John. Well, John, as we heard there from Elliot, county-level returns do suggest that Donald Trump did a bit better with Hispanic voters than he did in 2016. And of course, to regular listeners of the podcast, this will be no great surprise. We had that very good report from you in Florida, where you're talking to lots of Hispanic voters who seemed pretty excited about Donald Trump. But for those who may not have heard that podcast, why do you think Donald Trump did relatively better with Hispanic voters? I mean, I think it's a it's a combination of two things. I think that in Florida, where the result was perhaps the most striking, the characterization of Democrats as socialist resonated with Cuban population and also with, with Venezuelans, Colombians, Nicaraguans, all communities with significant presences in Florida. But I think that obfuscates the real reason he did well, which you can see in Texas too, which is that the Republicans just asked for their votes. They were out there working for them in a way that Democrats just weren't. And I find that result extremely heartening because it suggests two things. Number one, that Republicans can compete for and win non-white votes. You also saw the share of African-Americans who voted for Donald Trump rise this year as opposed to in 2016. So it suggests that the Republican Party should be competing for these votes rather than trying to suppress them. And number two, it suggests that Democrats have some work to do in understanding what Hispanic voters want and how they think and should really get out there and listen instead of presuming that Hispanic voters are a natural coalition partner whose votes can be taken for granted. That's not the case. A lot of Hispanic Americans are small business owners And I think that the sort of economic policies that Donald Trump promised, that Republicans promised, really resonate with them. And more to the point, a lot of Mexican-Americans in in Texas and New Mexico, where Trump picked up a large share of Hispanic votes, I think the law and order message might have worked very well. There's a high degree of employment in in border police among Latinos in Texas and, and New Mexico. And I think that they are not as offended by Donald Trump's immigration talk as Democrats think they should be. So in all of that, the lesson is Republicans should work for Latino votes instead of suppressing them. And Democrats really need to listen and think about how to win this population. That said, we shouldn't go overboard with this notion that Donald Trump found some magic formula for Republicans to win non-white votes. I mean, he did about as well 
among Hispanic voters as George W. Bush did in 2000. So the Republican Hispanic vote sort of declined in between those moments and then came back. He he won about 30%, I think, of Hispanic votes. So, you know, Democrats are still winning Latino voters by a very big margin and even bigger margins when it comes to African-Americans. It looks like about 10% of African-Americans voted for Donald Trump, though, though we can't be sure. That's still you know, an overwhelming endorsement of the Democratic Party. So we're talking about kind of marginal shifts here, but they're certainly very interesting. And, and I think one thing you can say is that you know, white college-educated Democrats who assume that Donald Trump's rhetoric um, on race, who assume that he's you know, a racist, who would therefore put off all non-white voters in America um, delivering a landslide for the Democrats. You know, that just doesn't seem to be the case. Not all non-white Americans respond to Donald Trump's language and way of doing politics in the way that white college-educated Democrats imagine they would and kind of think they ought to. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The George W. Bush comparison is really apposite because he also really worked for Hispanic votes. And it shows that this this is a community that's up for grabs. Um, and that, as you say, that is not as instantly repelled by Donald Trump's language as white liberals think they should be. And Charlotte, we've mainly been talking about places where or demographic groups where Donald Trump picked up votes in this cycle, though, of course, he's lost overall and lost the popular vote by a huge margin. In the flip side of him picking up some more votes among Hispanic Americans and African Americans than he did last time. Democrats just did unbelievably well in cities and in close suburbs, the kind of suburbs that, you know, inner suburbs, um, as we were talking about earlier this year. So that plan seems to have worked pretty well for them. Yes. If you take North Carolina, Charlotte and Raleigh voted against Trump with even more force than they did four years ago. And you see the the really big swing, as Elliot highlighted, of white college voters towards Biden, you know, at least a four-point shift. Yeah, I thought it was so fascinating, the data showing that non-college-educated white voters solidified their support for President Trump. And I think that that is just points to a real challenge that will be an inherent challenge of the, of the Biden presidency, should it materialize, of figuring out how to govern a country that has become even more polarized, that has divided governments. Polarization is not new in American politics, but I think this election that we've just seen may be the apex of it. And it's going to be very, I think, very hard to to govern and get things done. Though, who knows? I mean, maybe Biden and McConnell, their old deal-making revives. But you see in these numbers that Elliot pointed out, this very, very deep polarization. John, another really remarkable thing from this election is it appears that Georgia, your old stamping ground, you were based in Atlanta for a long time, Georgia has become a swing state. That is a huge change. I think the Republican fear is less that it's become a swing state than that it may be about to do what Virginia did, which is basically go straight from red to blue with no purple in between. I think the demographics of the state suggest that that may well happen. The state's center of gravity is Atlanta and its suburbs. Atlanta has always been democratic, but if the suburbs are also undergoing that same sort of suburban shift, I think you'll see what you see in Virginia, which is that you have the D.C. suburbs and the Hampton Roads area overwhelmingly democratic, and the rest of the state may be conservative, but there just aren't enough people there. I think that's the, that's the big concern. The other thing that I'm struck by, and I think Democrats want to rethink in this election, is the argument that money in politics is is determinative. I think you saw 
several senatorial candidates, Sarah Gideon in Maine, Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, Amy McGrath in Kentucky, MJ Hagar in Texas, raise enormous amounts of money and lose. So there is obviously a normative argument against campaign fundraising. You can argue that for the good of the country campaign should be should be publicly financed. But I think you need to rethink this argument that the more money a candidate has, the better it is for him or her. I think we just saw a lot of Democrats basically setting their money on fire for long shot candidates who didn't pull it off. Yeah, I agree with that. Kristen Soltis Anderson, who we had on the podcast earlier this year, describes it as fundraging rather than fundraising. It's very effective. It's also worth pointing out that not just that Georgia could help deliver the White House to Joe Biden and and have a huge impact on the presidency, but that the control of the Senate very much relies on the outcome in Georgia. There you see it's a little bit less strong of an outlook for Democrats. Purdue still leads John Ossoff, the Democratic challenger. But you see an extraordinary situation in which you're going to have two runoffs for Georgia's Senate seat. So the margin between David Perdue, the current senator, and Democrat John Ossoff is close enough that you'll have a runoff. And then there'll be another runoff between the current Republican senator, Kelly Loeffler, and the Democratic candidate, Raphael Warnock. The fact that you have two Senate runoffs is a really interesting sign for a state like Georgia that has sent two Republicans to the Senate for so many years. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back to talk a bit more about the Senate and to get some perspective from Beijing in a moment. The voters in Philadelphia we heard from earlier were really clear-minded about their responsibility as the world looks on. What does the result they've delivered mean for America? I thought it'd be helpful to zoom out a bit to answer that question. So I called David Rennie, The Economist's Chagwang columnist and Beijing bureau chief, and asked what kind of coverage the election has had there. This election has broken through. And one of the reasons it's broken through is that social media which is also incredibly strictly censored by the Communist Party, they have sort of opened the floodgates and they have allowed this real flow of mockery, of kind of funny memes. There's a a running joke that's been going now for quite some time that Donald Trump is so bad for America that he's actually a secret agent for China, building up China. So one of his big nicknames is Comrade Build Up the Country Trump. So Quan Jian Guo Tongzhi. And you'll see pictures of him in Chinese army uniforms. You'll see people on social media saying things like, careful agents, Chuan Jianguo, you know, you're, you're being so damaging to America, you're going to blow your cover, and they're going to realise that you're working for the Chinese Communist Party. What's really interesting is that state media, which has been very, very discreet up until now, has suddenly started hedging as if they realised that Joe Biden is probably going to win this thing. And so just today, we started to see state media putting out profiles of Joe Biden talking about how he had lost his first wife and children in that car crash, um, how he's come through lots of struggles. You're seeing some of the most nationalist Chinese outlets like uh, the Huanqiu Shiraba, the Global Times, kind of saying, you know, that a lot of Chinese people are starting to think there may be something to Joe Biden. So you can see them hedging now. Just to go back to what's going on on Chinese social media and the stuff you mentioned about Agent Trump trying to take down America from the from the inside on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, the internet's fairly heavily censored in China. Why are the powers that be, why is the Chinese Communist Party allowing all that stuff to flourish online? You're absolutely right. Social media is incredibly strictly censored. If you put up a picture of Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, in a kind of mocking meme, it would be down within a second and the police would be hammering on your door within an hour. 
So this is being allowed. Why is it being allowed? Well, because in this year in which the Chinese communist leadership is telling their people a story about how China, with its one-party system and its communist party mobilization of the grassroots, beat COVID, has kept the Chinese people safe, and the West did not. And why? Because look at these Westerners. They are too selfish and too spoilt to wear face masks to keep themselves safe, not like the patriotic, hardworking Chinese who sacrificed and stayed indoors for months and didn't get paid in order to beat the virus. And this shows, this is the Chinese story, this shows that democracy is a wicked lie, that democracy doesn't really help ordinary people, that democracy is corrupt, that it's chaotic, that it chooses bad leaders like Trump. And if a system chooses bad leaders, then how can you respect it? Whereas the Chinese system chooses good leaders who've handled COVID well, who've made China rich and powerful. So if you just judge it on that basis alone, clearly one party socialism with Chinese characteristics is beating American democracy into a cocktail. And so now every time that Donald Trump accuses the system of being corrupt or talks about stolen votes, that is then relayed to the Chinese people as fresh evidence that everything about American democracy is falling apart. This is a decadent, tired failing state. So Charlotte, the spectacle of confusion in America, the amount of time it's taking to count the votes, the speeches, the mad speeches that the president's been giving, etc. You can see how that is all good for people sat in Beijing who want to look at America and say, look, this system's failing and this country's going down the tubes. However, this is how the process works. It's how it's always worked. Federal elections in America are decentralized. When they're really close, lawyers get involved. How optimistic are you that America will come through this extreme test of the system that Donald Trump and his legal team are about to provide? I think there are two ways of answering that question. One is the question about whether legally Trump's lawsuits have merit whether they'll succeed. And I think on that front, we can be reasonably confident that the system will hold up. In Pennsylvania, um, there are a number of different suits. The most prominent one is that Trump's, uh, the Trump campaign wants to stop counting ballots that are received after election day, but received this week. In Michigan, they want to stop counting so that observers can monitor what, what's happening in the polling stations. Same in Nevada. Um, they want to get in Georgia a really small number of ballots thrown up. Um, They want to recount in Wisconsin. I think that those legal battles are likely to fail. The the second question, though, is what happens among the broader American political culture. You have Donald Trump Jr. almost taking a roll call on Twitter to get Republicans to voice their support of the president's challenge of election results to say that what's happening does amount to voter fraud. It's like having a tyrannical toddler with parents afraid of upsetting him. And you see this sort of very, I think it is it is legitimately dangerous conversation about whether some of those 70 million people who did vote for Donald Trump think that the whole election was fraud. I mean, that, that would be a pretty remarkable outcome. I don't think all 70 million people fall for that. But th- there's, there's, a, there's a difference, I think, between whether the result holds up in terms of the legality of it, and then whether 
a pretty broad swath of Americans fundamentally reject it? And then what does that mean for trying to govern this country going forward? Yeah, I think I think that's a real worry, given that Donald Trump, the fact that he ran as an outsider and sort of hijacked the Republican Party means he doesn't really have any loyalty to it or to America's political system, as we've seen when he's been in office. He's just abused norms and procedures. He's flouted the rule of law. And so it is part of his brand, I think, to inculcate this distrust of the system, to maintain an aggrieved populace who will follow him wherever he goes. That's really worrying. Yeah, just on that, Jennifer Horn, who's one of the Never Trumpers of the Lincoln Project, just recorded an Economist Asks podcast. And she said on that that Donald Trump has the potential to be more destructive out of the White House than he was in the White House, which is not a particularly cheering thought. Charlotte, the inability of the American political system at the moment to generate a result that is accepted as fair by everyone is one of the things that I think we'll take away from this election. And that's largely to do with a kind of doubt over the process that the president and his various mouthpieces have been spreading for months now. What are some other lessons that you'll take from from this 2020 election? Well, I think for Democrats, it's really a Rorschach test, depending on their own prior opinions about whether Joe Biden should have been the nominee in the first place. I think that some on the left will say we should have had a real populist to counter Donald Trump's populism, and we shouldn't have been trying to seek out a moderate because, look, these non-college educated white voters didn't vote for us anyway when we picked someone who thought perfectly suited that demographic. Others will say, you know, that Biden was dragged down by all this attention to Democrats and socialism and that that Uh, Donald Trump really was able to use that against Democrats, and so we shouldn't move further left. It will be really interesting to see if if a President Biden is uh, brought into the White House in January, who he chooses to appoint out of this election as Treasury Secretary, uh, as the head of the State Department. You know, I, I think it's unlikely that he's going to choose someone who is further on the left or someone like Elizabeth Warren, as we've discussed in the past. But this battle within the Democratic Party that we saw play out so dramatically in the primaries, I think is going to rev up even more so going forward. John, how about you? What lessons will you draw from 2020? I think the lesson is that people are more heterodox in their views than partisans think they should be. I think if you look past the presidential results, and even the Senate results down to ballot initiatives, you saw voters in liberal California declined to abolish cash bail and declined to end the state's ban on affirmative action. You saw voters in Florida back Donald Trump, but also overwhelmingly back a $15 minimum wage, which was a cornerstone of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's campaign. You saw voters in Montana and South Dakota, two very conservative states, vote to legalize marijuana. I think the big thing I draw from all of this is just Again, I know it's a familiar point, and we've made it a bunch of times, but it's just still true. The incredible power of partisanship in America to condition how Americans respond to big events. So think back to all the podcasts we've done this year and all the things we've talked about. Donald Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives about a year ago, which made him only the third president in American history to suffer that fate. 230,000 Americans are dead from COVID-19. We had the high-profile killings of African-Americans, unarmed African-Americans by police officers and the largest civil rights protests in American history in response to that. 
We've had some episodes of violence in some cities. We had those awful wildfires in California. You had the far-right thugs who tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. You had Donald Trump's extraordinary first debate performance, which is really a low moment in the history of the presidency. And you had the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Donald Trump nominating a third Supreme Court judge. You had Hunter Biden and his laptop, etc., etc. And at the end of all that, hardly anybody seems to have changed their mind about who they want to be America's next president. Now, we're talking about marginal shifts here. Okay, turnout was up. But at the end of the day, 90% of people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 voted for Joe Biden. 90% of people who voted for Donald Trump voted for Donald Trump again. It's just amazing how stuck American politics is. That hits on another quick point that I think Democrats ought to bear in mind, which is that the idea that high turnout elections means they win is not true. That, That they should focus, that of course people should vote, and of course high turnout is good for a democracy. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good for the Democratic Party. I absolutely agree with John Fasman. I think that's a hugely important lesson. And then, you know, the optimistic way to think about the coming year, if Joe Biden is president, as we expect, is whether a group of grownups who are seasoned professionals who claim to have the country's best interests at heart can actually get anything done. America has a lot of really big problems that it needs to cope with. The economy is reeling from COVID-19. There are long-term questions about American competitiveness. There's a trade war that the government is inheriting from the Trump era. There are very important questions of of America's long-term relationship with China, American infrastructure, of course, climate change, which Joe Biden made a a big priority within his campaign, and which even among some Republicans, there's, there's support for doing at least something to try to grapple with that problem. I think that it will be very interesting to see whether Joe Biden and Senate Republicans and a Democratic controlled House can make any can make any headway on any of this stuff. I very much hope that they can. And I'm looking forward to chatting about it with you both over the next several months. I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to focusing a bit less in the podcast on federal politics. And clearly, that will be the focus for the next few months as we go to the transition. And I'm sure that's going to be bumpy in December and January. But it's going to be fun looking at what's going on in states, talking a bit more about social changes in America that don't have so much to do with Republicans versus Democrats. Um, I'm looking forward to that, too. This has been tremendous fun to do. I'm glad we're going to keep doing it. And I'm glad we're going to be a bit less tied to the electoral cycle. Another thing I'm going to keep doing is asking you obscure quiz questions. A civic-minded checks and balance listener in Malta has been tabulating the quiz scores since we started back in January. Charlotte, you're on 24 and a third points. Fasman, you're in the lead, but only just with 28 and a half Thank you to Nathaniel Muscat for keeping track of I'm those. I'm filing a lawsuit to check the veracity of this count. I feel like we need some observers. <laughs> I hear Rudy Giuliani's got some time on his hands. <laughs> there is therefore everything to play for, as the quiz show hosts say in this one. A dispatch from New York in the Economist's edition of the 23rd of November, 1844, describes a country, quote, at a standstill, awaiting the results of the presidential election. Friends of Mr. Clay were beginning to feel less confident than they were heretofore, we wrote. Who was Henry Clay's opponent, the eventual winner, in 1844, which is the first presidential election The Economist covered? Was it Harrison? Charlotte? Um, 
I have absolutely no idea. I really don't. The other thing about this, this is why we really do need election observers, is that John Brito tries to assist me by cheating, but now he's just poking his face, which I find perplexing. It has something to do with an assassination, but I don't know. I still don't know. I'm so hopeless. No, it has everything to do with his Clay's opponent in 1844 was James Polk. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were, you were, I thought that was an assassination reference too, and I just couldn't figure out who it was. It was I threw you both off. I don't think anyone gets any points there, and I think I'm probably deducted several from cheating. Um, the front page of the following week's Economist called Polk's victory an agreeable surprise. Winning free traders in the swing state of Pennsylvania was key to the Democrats' success, we reported. As president, Polk reduced trade tariffs, as The Economist hoped. He went to war with Mexico over Texas. He also negotiated a big territorial settlement with which other country? France. Yeah, I think France. It was Great Britain. (laughs) The part... (laughs) The partition of Oregon country extended America's territory to the Pacific Ocean. Polk had made America great, fulfilled its manifest destiny, as he called it, but he didn't run for a second term. He decided he had done everything he said he'd do as president. A workaholic, he rarely took time off and died three months after leaving office. Now we know. I feel like I would fail an American citizenship test. That's the main takeaway from these quizzes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. We'll be back next week. Please keep leaving us lovely ratings and reviews if you're enjoying this podcast. It really helps to spread the word. You can get in touch with us on email. The address is radio at economist.com. Thanks very much for listening. We will have more checks and balance next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.